Welcome to Legal Trailblazers, where we talk about black lawyers and their role in the ushering in of the constitutional democracy that South Africa enjoys today. On a warm winter's day in July, I met with Judge Mujapilo at our studios in Johannesburg. Since his retirement from the bench, he has been living in an area near Nelspreet and White River in the Mpumalanga province of South Africa, where he has a home. We began the interview with the judge outlining his cultural background and also his days as a student at the University of the North, also known as Teflop University, in the early 1970s. During his time, there were a lot of protests against the apartheid government. The philosophy of black consciousness was at its height and had permeated the collective thinking of black society. Well, they are of the Northern Soto group. Yes. And some people don't realize there's a difference between Northern Soto and the Badis. The Badis fall under King Sukukuni and the other Northern Sotos uh, are much broader, include the Wapedis. So uh, we are the uh, Northern Sotos. We are the descendants of the Ndebeles, of Kekana, who in turn are the descendants of the Mahlangus. And um, our home base and where I was born is in Pulukwani. I was born, did my early school days there, until the age of 16, when I came over to Johannesburg and I was in uh, Soweto for a few years before I moved to Nelspreet. I really went to Nelspreet as a lawyer. I came to Soweto for the first time as a student, mostly during holidays. And uh, I started doing vacation jobs in Johannesburg and uh, I came to live in Soweto full-time while I was at varsity. And uh, my varsity was University of the North, so I never schooled in Soweto itself. Yes. So you went to the University of the Teflop. Yes. What, what, what year was that? 1972. Uh, you were contemporaries with people like Nkhubutetiro. And, and, and you studied law. What degree did you study there, by the way? I studied the junior the, degree. I studied the BPROC degree before I went on to do the LLB degree. And yes, the late Ohopose Abram Ramutibi Tiro was a senior student when I got to the University of the North. The first major protest at the University of the North was 1972, and that related to the expulsion from the University of Abramtiro, and then uh, that led to the disruption of the university for two or three months. And I think the next one was 1974, after the independence of uh, Mozambique, there was Profredi Morali, which did not please the security police, and there were major disruptions. And the students were just celebrating freedom of their neighbor. And that too led to the closure of the university for a month or two. 
So that if I think I did it well to be around 1974. Yes, that was when the black consciousness movement was at its height, especially in the campuses. Did that was even before 1976, before the Soweto uprisings. Would you say that uh, the the influence of black consciousness did translate itself to the happenings in Soweto in 1976? What happened in the in the campuses, especially the, the black campuses? Well, there is a definite relationship between the black conscious uh, movement, which was the main movement in the country then. When I arrived at the university, that was very strong in 1972, and it was growing. Every one of us, as you registered as a student at the university, you also registered as a member of the black consciousness movement. The student formation was SASO, South African Student Organization, and Abram um, Tiro, um, Tara Lakota, and a number of others were in the leadership, but all of us became members of uh, the Black Consciousness Movement represented through its students' organization. And um, Abram Tiro was expelled from the university for his strong pro-consciousness movement. And you would know that uh, he went to Soweto, and I think he went to Maurice Isaacson, he taught there temporarily. And uh, his influence amongst the students, I think it's, it's known. The security police followed him up until he ent- went to Botswana. And that's where they killed him. Uh, I think you know the story. So in my view, there is a definite relationship between the Black Consciousness Movement and the happenings of 1976. I have told you that the landmark which I have of activities at the university is 1972, the expulsion of Abram Tiro, 1974, the Prof. Ali Morali, and 1976, it's uh, the uprisings in Soweto, which affected all un- black universities in South Africa. Yes. Funny enough, of course, the time that we're talking about now was after the likes of the ANC and the PAC had been banned. And then after late 60s, early 70s, what you have just referred to, then the black consciousness movement came to the fore. However, there are people who are saying that there was also an influence of the Africanists but for some reason, that influence is being downplayed, and it has been downplayed over the years. In fact, I, I'll make reference to a case involving uh, Zephania Mutuping, who was a leader of the Band Pan-Africanist Congress. And I understand he, in the aftermath of the 1976 uh, uprisings, he, he was criminally charged for inciting students to revolt against against the apartheid government. And in the criminal case that he was an accused of, a number one accused of, the magistrate there 
made a finding that you, in fact, Mr. Mutupeng, was the catalyst or the instigator behind the Soweto uprisings. I'm raising this up just to, to highlight or to question how come at the time this influence of the Africans was not uh, highlighted as much as it could have been. Well, I do not want to enter that debate in the sense of claiming who is right and who is wrong. I certainly enter the university at a time when black consciousness is the dominant movement in the country. That the Pan-Africanist or even the African national movement thinking might have been the underlying um, inspiration. I cannot deny that fact. But as I look at things in the 60s, well, and the 50s, and uh, I look at it with a hindsight, Pan-Africanism as well as the ANC movements are quite dominant in the country. And they did not go underground of their own choice. They've been banned and they therefore went underground. And I seem to see the black consciousness movement coming up to fill that vacuum. And uh, black consciousness did not come to replace any of those um, movements. And in fact, amongst students of African uh, black consciousness, there was a question as to which ones are they aligned to? And they did not split themselves into being one or the other. There was a broad support for the broad liberation movement, which people could align their thinking with either ANC and PAC, which in themselves also come from the same root. So um, I will not enter that debate. Uh, probably... Zach Mutupen would have known better than I should. Yes, Judge. But uh, it's just that above the ground, the Black Conscious Movement wasn't banned. All the others were banned. And it's only much later that the authorities rose and said, yeah, here's another baby who has, which has come up. Maybe it qualifies to be banned. Hmm? It, it, could, it could be true, yes. It, yes. it is indeed, yes. And then your decision or your choice to, to study law, what, what motivated you? Or did you draw inspiration from someone? Or is there someone that you looked up to who was already practicing law? Or were you encouraged by someone to study law? I don't know. I just know that when I was at high school, I made up my mind I was going to study law. I don't know whether any particular reading I made would have uh, spurred me in that direction. Most people saw studying law as following politics because all the previous African lawyers had somehow been persecuted, were in Robben Island and whatever. But uh, a bit of that knowledge, which was all banned, as well as just reading about legal practice generally spurred me into the direction of wanting to speak for and be a defender of the rights of the people. And when did you finish your legal studies? I started in 1972, and it was four-year BPROC and two years LLB. 
And I think I finished at the end of 1977. I hope my calculation is right there. Yes. I definitely finished in the end of 1977, um, during which year, when I did my final year LLB, I was also a lecturer at the same university in 1978, or was it the end of 78? I started my articles of flagship. What were you teaching there as a lecturer? I was teaching um, the area called African law, which is really a conflict between the indigenous customary law and the Western imported law into the country and what the relationship is between those legal systems. That, that, that sounds very interesting. I I understand you are very passionate about uh, about that subject. Would you say say at this juncture where we we are now in 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 2022, South Africa having this constitution that we have that have done enough over the years to promote African indigenous law, or maybe where should we start? What what is African indigenous law, law to someone who who's not uh, in the legal uh, field or who hasn't studied law? What are we talking about? What kind of an animal is this uh, African indigenous law? Well, when it worked, it walked and travelled the terrains of Africa. You and I were probably not yet born, but in my own imagination. That is the law which governed and regulated the lives of the Africans on this continent before the white people came. That is the law in terms of which they lived, they resolved their problems, and uh, regulated the interrelationships amongst the individuals and amongst the tribes and amongst the nations of Africa. That's what I would broadly describe as African law or African indigenous law. Um, and then, of course, the Westerners arrived here in a more formal form in 1652 with their own legal system, very much like uh, the Roman Empire entered Europe many years before they bring their own legal system here, and as the conqueror, that is the system which was dominant, it was applied, and African law gradually started receding into the background because the colonialists applied their own law and resolved disputes in the courts using their own law. So... The African indigenous law, very much like everything African, including religions, was suppressed by colonialists, and we were all made to live and regulate our lives according to the indigenous law. So in that study, I realized that successive colonialists actually decided what relationship they should have 
with the African indigenous law. They were aware of it, by the way. I mean, it's also a system which they had to displace as they put the chiefs' tenship around and put the chiefs after, under the Western culture. Uh, so in that study, it was a question of one commission after the other, some just taking a brutal view that there's only one law here. It is the law of the colonial power. I mean, as if colonial powers themselves were one monogamous group. They all came from different backgrounds. I mean, that's why we end up not with a Roman law, not with a Dutch law, not with the English law, but something of a mixture of Roman-Dutch law with English influence, because that is where the colonizers came from. But we, we have a new constitution. Have we done enough to no. redress this uh, imbalance or this damage caused by uh, uh, Western powers? Tuto, you are asking a very complex question there. Yes. Where could we even start, for that matter, if we're to start, if we're to say, let us give African customary law its rightful place in our new constitutional regime? I've said that's a complex question. As you would know, law is broadly divided into public and private law. Public law would go into the administration of the state itself. Private law would be your contract, your marriage, your what governs the private life. And if you truly want to resuscitate African law, you've got to do a soul-searching question whether you are prepared to take the indigenous authority to the indigenous rulers. Because truth be told, what the colonialists did, they took over indigenous public authority and put it in the hands of the politicians. And the president, governor general as they called them, was the paramount chief of all the natives, all the Bantus, all the black people, and all the chiefs fell under him. And he decided who eventually becomes the chief. And they, through legislation, took over the power to appoint chiefs. And they used their political power to appoint chiefs who were pliant and compliant with their political directions. That is at public law. And what then happened is, with the evolution of the ruling powers comes the homeland. The homeland authorities, although headed by black people, took that power and put it in the hands of the chief minister. Chief ministers started appointing chiefs. And as you know, in terms of indigenous structures, they were not appointed by anybody. They were born and the councillors appointed them. Then came our new democracy. And we have taken that power and given it to the new government. 
So those authorities still have to be appointed. Certain kings in this country are still waiting for presidential appointment as if they really need that endorsement to be who they should be. That is at public level. Do you really want to return real authority to those powers and give them authority to rule in terms of their own laws? That is at public level. At private level, you have the family law, you have the contract law, the indigenous one. You have the interrelationship between people. And there's a body of laws there with minor differences from tribe to tribe. But there are principles which run across. I mean, the whole concept of communal thing, disputes being based on families, families being brought in in resolution of disputes, children being brought up by villages, and so on and so forth. You could go on to enumerate that. The whole concept of there's really no often in an African indigenous system because now, do you, when you talk about return of that customary law, how far do you really want to go? Yes. The political question has to be answered. What the constitution did, which is much better than what the colonial authority did, is to provide for the recognition of that customary law in our courts. Prior to the present constitution, all they did is they say, well, African law may be applied, but only in disputes between Africans themselves and where that law is not in conflict with the Western law, which they called natural justice. So, yes. You ask me the question, where do we begin? Yes. We've got to answer the political question. Do we truly want to accommodate it? I mean, some years back, the South African Law Commission, for instance, brought in a law which was the recognition of customary marriages. We haven't gone nearly as far enough, and therefore the ho- we are still being haunted by have we recognized Muslim marriages? Have you recognized other indigenous systems of marriages? And our constitutional framework forces us to recognize those. But the truth is, when the recognition of African customary marriages act was implemented, what it did, it said, if African people get married, the consequence of that marriage would be a marriage in community of property. Now, it didn't say it will be a marriage in terms of African custom and then go in there and say the following are inhuman and must go out. So it was, I'm afraid, more of an abolition than a recognition. Yes, It's almost saying if a horse enters my stable, it will be called a donkey or a cow. So our recognition is really not full recognition. Yes. And therefore, we still have conflicts, particularly in villages and tribal areas, uh, with chiefs very uncertain as to how far they can resolve disputes according to the African indigenous system as they know it, 
having regard to the fact that the magistrate who's going to apply customary law has the appeal right over them, and then it goes to the high court, where not every judge there understands customary law, and on and so on and so, on and so forth. You've got to take the decision, the political power, do the authorities really want to accommodate the full African law to the extent where it's not in conflict with human rights? Um, because there are many instances. You know, the system, the African system of resolution of disputes bring about more of a restorative uh, outcome, whereas the Western system would say, find who's wrong, and the wrongdoer is stamped as the wrongdoer, and there is never peace between those who are wronged and those who are wronged done. But the African indigenous system tended to build broken relationships. Sorry, a long answer. A, a very illuminating answer. Yes. But your answer tells me that uh, you, you have got the making of a, a very good book there. Have you thought about writing a book on a subject? Uh, or are you in the process of uh, writing one? No. I The last time I thought of a study along those lines was when I taught that subject, when I realized that uh, different rulers actually took a conscious decision as to what do they recognize. For instance, they just said, well, we will recognize the custom of Labola and we will not outlaw it. Labola still thrives. Everything else, they consciously outlawed it. My interest at that stage, if I had continued along the academic stream, I would have looked at South Africa and at all the independent states and say what happened to the relationship between the customary law and the colonizer law when colonialism arrived and what happened when colonialism was taken out and Africans took over. Did they reflect on the choices they have between what is good in the African indigenous system and which they can go forward with? Or did they just become the replacers of colonial rulers and continue that. I would have liked, and I see more than just a study, I see an encyclopedia looking at all the African countries and look what happened before the advent of colonialism, under colonialism, and when the African rulers themselves took over, did they try to resuscitate and look what is good in that legal system and carry it forward? Or did they just take the colonial power and continue with it? I just thought there is a challenge to look at the entire African dimension. Every one of our countries were once colonized and probably work with the universities and look at what information is there. And one should have done it probably before 1994, so that if you find fault lines where other states did not look, you could say the next rulers must look at this. So I think there is a subject there which is bigger than my own life. If I had stayed in the academics, that's where I would have gone. 
1980, he obtained employment as a candidate attorney at Weber Wenzel, one of the biggest law firms in South Africa, and which is traditionally a white law firm. I started working for Weber Wenzel as a vacation clerk while I was still studying law. I was in the habit while studying law of understanding how the practice actually work, and I would sit down and apply to all the law firms I could find in writing and send out letters to want to do vocational job. And I met with the partners of Weber Winsell and the other law firms at a function of the Law Society when I went to go and receive a prize. And I wanted to say, I wrote a letter to Sorin, so can I find him? And that's how I met with them. And they said, come and work with us first as a VEC clerk. And then eventually that relationship grew into a position where I was appointed as a, an article clerk. Was, was there any cultural shock when you, when you joined? I, I, I can imagine, uh, almost, uh, every one of the professional staff there was, uh, white. And, uh, there you are, you come in, you join this big law firm. Well, how was it for you? It was not only white, it was very English. The word went around there that to be a partner at uh, an English firm, you had to speak with a hot potato in your mouth. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so um, there was a much broad cultural shock. There was no obligation on white law firms, which represented 90% of lawyers in the country, to take on black candidate attorneys. And the only way in which you could practice, you had to enter article under one. And there were very few black lawyers. There was no law which said they should take me. So I was indebted to them that they decided to take me. But they took into their law firm a student and adherent of black consciousness who actually understood that I do not owe it to any culture to be here. I have a right to be here, who also understood that the oppressor is able to continue with his inhuman laws for as long as the mind of the oppressed would allow it to happen. So I enter that firm when it's all white, when it's all English, and well, I insist, I do not need to apologize to be here. There was a cultural shock on both sides. They were used to pliant and compliant black staff who were cleaners and messengers and who would go into the stairways outside the building for the bathrooms. And they had just brought among themselves this young black guy who is walking and insists on being one of them. And they get shocked when they see you in the bathroom. And they are not quite sure whether to go back or to ask you questions. Yeah, that was a very good. I think it was a, t a learning on both sides. So when you went to work or you, uh, in the afternoon going home, you had to contend with those uh, apartheid laws, past laws, influx control laws, which regulated 
the movements of black people at the time? How did you encounter problems in that regard and how did you overcome it? So. Tito, if, if you go along that line and I don't fear and I don't mind talking about it, you might just need a lot of time. Black people could not just come and work in the city, as you know. You had to have certain rights to live in the city. And uh, I had to go via Albert Street, and I'm sure you know something about it, and be examined and be certified as one who could be allowed to work here. And Weber Wenzel was ready to take me on, but they had to comply with the influx control laws. And uh, I was taken under articles of flagship on the basis that the Bantu Affairs Commissioner gave me a right to remain in the city for as long as I was employed by the particular firm, a provision which would have embarrassed Weber Wenzel as much as it embarrassed me. Basically, I'm here tolerated on condition this is my employer for a defined period, a condition which had to be stamped in your ID book so that if you are stopped anywhere, your presence in the city during the daytime could be explained with reference to your employer. Yes, I went through all that. As a young candidate attorney working at Weber Wenzel, he had to interact with white people who were working in various capacities within the justice system. How did he manage these interactions with individuals, some of whom had considered themselves superior to black people? The system under apartheid was such that black people were made to feel that they are underdogs throughout the country and whenever they tried to access services. But black consciousness had created in us a personality which is not prepared to cow down to any form of oppression from outside. And I think it was a welcome replacement for what I saw as the vacuum between the banning of liberation movements and the unbanning. They were unfriendly. And it was not just the white people. Black people had also been taught to serve white people first while other black people waited. The missus and the bus had to be helped before the boy and the girl can be assisted. So it was all over and one had to confront it. But in black people who adopted that psychology, I saw patients of psychological oppression who in fact in wanting to serve me second had been made to accept their own second class status in the land of their birth. So the only way of turning around the oppressor and make them appreciate that you are as equal to him is to refuse to accept any oppression and insisted on being treated the same. By the way, Johannesburg was much better than Nelspreet when I eventually got to it, and I suspect you'll get there in due course. Yes. Where I found 
court galleries still segregated and black people had to sit on one side and the, the other. But here, there was a bit of a spirit that uh, you've got to liberate, you've got to open up space. But the Group Areas Act was there, and it was not only in the courts. You could not go to any restaurant you want. The restauranteurs would only serve black people in the city if they had what they called an international license. I'm sitting with a group of candidate attorneys and when I go out for lunch with them, they have to be careful to go to an international restaurant because other restaurants would not take on this black person. Yes. And you could well imagine we all stop the door of a restaurant to see whether we'll be allowed to say, no, we don't have an international license. And before my white fellow candidate attorneys would reply, say, no, sorry, we are all South Africans. So you don't need an international license. 1977, I'm a student at the university. And therefore, what I tell you about 1977 is what I became aware of in 1978, 79, and 80 when I entered practice life. Black lawyers were not allowed to have offices in city center. The Group Areas Act said you could only have it if you had a Group Areas Permit. Because they were black, they couldn't be in white areas. The courts were in white areas. The lines were in white areas during the day. Black areas, so-called townships, were nothing other than labor reservoirs, where the workers moved in the morning to the white area. So the Group area said you must go and practice in black areas. She was rubbish. A few Asiatic and other liberal whites with buildings on the outskirts of town would be prepared to take on a black tenant. And then it means you must then apply for a Group Areas Act. The Black Lawyers was formed as a reaction to that inequality. And I think in the background was also the 1976 uprising in which they found that as a group they had to defend their own who reacted to racial oppression. And then they started realizing that, but as a community we are all oppressed. We are denied what is basically ours. We are not even second class. We are third and fourth class citizens in the land of our birth, the continent of our birth. And therefore, they first organized themselves into wanting to and did in fact defend victims of racist law, then carving a space for themselves also to support each other in asserting their practice rights. That is what they really reacted to. There was both an individual professional program as well as a community component accompanying that. In part two of our conversation with Mr. Mujabilo, the first appointees interviews we conducted in 1994 was for the selection of judges to the Constitutional Court. And uh, we interviewed them, we got them in, but there were also questions about uh, what is a fit and proper person. 
the white perspective was a fit and proper person for appointment to the bench is a senior counsel. And all of them happened to be white and male, barring one or two blacks. And we said, no. The Constitution also says when appointing judges, the JSC had to take into consideration the need for South Africa to have a judiciary which is broadly representative of the race and gender. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.